Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, I have with me Dr. Anne Giersch from the University of Strasbourg. And today, we're going to be continuing on the topic of virtual reality and psychopathology and VR as used to help symptoms to um, you know, explore the mind and, and things of that sort. Now, last time our guest talked to us about um, VR for psychosis, and he didn't have any anything uh, to say because this was outside of his field. So today we have the researcher who is doing that work. So, Anne, would you like to briefly tell us who you are and what, how you got into this field and this uh, specific interest of VR? Sure. Uh, so hello to everybody first and uh, I am uh, my my background is psychiatry I'm a psychiatrist and then I was trained to experimental psychology and uh, I focus on timing issues since more than 10 years in psychosis in relation with the sense of self and sense of self disorders in in psychosis and then I went on board of this uh, European project to um, try to use uh, virtual reality both as a diagnosis tool and maybe also as a treatment tool, therapeutic tool. Great. Now, that's fascinating because it is the first time that I've ever heard of virtual reality being used in terms of uh, diagnostics. I know uh, just for the audience, because uh, regard, you know, depending on who's listening, not everybody has uh, clear knowledge or total knowledge about uh, psychopathology. And when we talk about psychosis, we're talking about individuals who have a disconnection or uh, they, they lose touch with reality and they may have symptoms like hallucinations, uh, hearing voices. Very often it's most usual to hear rather than see or other sense uh, hallucinations, such as uh, tactile, so feeling things. Um, now, would that, would that be, uh, would that be a, a, an accurate description or would you like to add something else? No, no, it's perfect. So, so indeed, so there is additional symptoms, but uh, like negative symptoms or mm -hmm. disorganization of sorts, but um, Really, what you said is exactly what we have in mind when we think that patients are, feel disconnected from their environment. And, um, we are interested in timing because we think it's a possible, one of the possible mechanisms to explain why patients feel disconnected from their environment. Because to feel immersed in the environment and to be able to interact with the environment, we have to be able to follow it accurately in time. And um, yeah, of course, this then becomes a little bit strange because uh, it's, it feels to us usually as a given that we are in time with the environment. It seems just, you know, we, the, the time is going on and the brain is flowing naturally. But the, what happens in psychosis is suggesting that this is not straightforward. This might involve complex mechanisms like prediction in time and so on. And this is why we are interested 
in time and, and virtual reality then brings us tools to manipulate time and see how this uh, can help us to both to diagnose and help patients. Am, am I clear enough? Uh, well, yes. I mean, it, it, it's this makes total sense in terms of time perception, time perspectives, and how they tie into uh, mental health issues. Because uh, as you, you may, you probably don't know, but uh, we, I'm also doing some research uh, related to time perception and ADHD, attention deficit oh, yeah. hyperactivity disorder. And mm -hmm. it is absolutely a uh, key component of the disorder to have these, uh, this time, you know, th these inaccurate or, and I don't actually, inaccurate is not the best way. There's this mismatch, right, with time perception and consciousness, which sounds very similar to what you're describing. Uh, with ADHD, it's about uh, the mismatch of time estimation, uh, seeing how time is flowing, overestimating or underestimating, and basically having yeah. the feeling very often that time is just slipping by very fast. And this uh -huh. can be corrected in many times when you see somebody with ADHD takes their medication, for instance, they don't mm -hmm. have that effect anymore. I see. So um, in schizophrenia, at least, maybe not in psychosis in general, but in schizophrenia, uh, they would say things like um, the fact that time is not going faster or slower, but that it's not there anymore and that it becomes some separated bits of time. So it seems to be about uh, the structure of time rather than duration. And that's why we are interested in prediction in time. Right, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That makes sense in this, you know, in terms of the psych psychosis being a disconnection. So it feels like you may have things like, you know, deep, also depersonalization, right? Where a person may be yeah, disconnected. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, yeah. So this is, this is very, uh, this is very interesting. And do you, so that the person feels like the, the time is an illusion maybe. Um, and can you describe it further? Because I, I, I it's, it's very, it's a very complex uh, theme. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, our feeling is that time is continuous, right? That it flows and it never, never interrupts. And um, I'm, I'm, it's the same thing with our ability to follow events in time. It seems very fluid. But in fact, some recent results um, show that we need time to process uh, the objects, the visual objects, for example, in, in our environment, we can need, if, if we need to process objects into details, then we can need something like 300 or 400 milliseconds. And this means that if there is several objects uh, going on um, one after another, then we would be very fast uh, too late, right? We wouldn't be able to follow information. 
So that's why we need prediction in time to anticipate and to go towards the end of the sequence of events that are to come, that we can anticipate on the basis of our recent experience. Am I not too fast? Oh, that is that is very clear. And in terms of a cognitive model, it, it makes perfect sense. So okay. continue, please. Yeah, and, and, and then this would mean actually that our feeling of time continuity probably relies uh, both on, on these prediction mechanisms uh, that allow us to be on time with the events of the world. Uh, but this means also a, a, a very complex machinery that helps us to feel as being um, in, uh, in, in touch with the environment and, and to feel time as being continuous. And uh, really, um, this means indeed that our sense of time continuity is a kind of illusion because we need to reconstruct this idea of a continuous time. Uh, but it's an illusion that is really necessary, probably, at, at least that's my interpretation, because we need to feel as being immersed in the environment. And part of the suffering of the patients comes from their feeling of being disconnected from their environment. And, and this might be due to some impairments in these predictive mechanisms that would um, uh, lead to this, um, this impairment they describe where, where they say that whenever something happens uh, uh, in the environment, then they lose completely the track. And, and they become distracted and, and, and they don't follow anything anymore. And um, so their feeling of time continuity might be disrupted at least from time to time. And we can only imagine what the consequence is for their experience, their conscious experience. I mean, it's so strong our feeling of time continuity that we have difficulties to imagine what it means for the patients where this feeling is not strong uh, at all anymore and maybe even gets disrupted. Yes, and, and indeed it's, it's important to note as, as we say, and I don't want to get too abstract, but um, yeah, that this time, time is an illusion indeed. And uh, the fact that they are <laughs> perceiving it as such, I, I think that there is some discomfort that is coming about from seeing that the people, these, these psychotic individuals uh, have uh, some, you know, they're, they're perceiving things differently than the greater society. And therefore they're getting anxious as well because of that, or they're not, you know, there's all these demands put, put about, put to them from people who are in the mainstream uh, state of consciousness that uh, need, you know, that, that the, the society is based on. And this, this is like, um, this reminds me of something like, Im imagine, like we have a society, for instance, we talk about uh, psychoactive substances. We have a society that runs on caffeine. Caffeine induces a certain state of consciousness, which is in line with 
what is expected from, uh, you know, uh, office culture or blue collar work or uh, studying all this stuff. But imagine if the, there would be another uh, drug, you know, such as cannabis or, for example, uh, you, you know, the, the state of consciousness would shift and the, the baseline would be different. So I, I just um, I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm just saying, like, if, if we think about all these things, our illusions, uh, our perceptual sets are based on evolution and they're based on survival right there you know we see a tree uh in a certain way so we don't go and and hit it right we don't bang our heads and i'm being a little bit reductionistic here but you get the sense like we have a limited capacity and so uh anyways i don't want to get too um too much into this but i want to focus now so yeah so there's these uh, anomalies with uh time perception in these individuals, but how does how does the virtual reality component uh, come in? Like, how do you? Uh, what's the environment that you're creating for these individuals with schizophrenia or psychosis? What is what are they expected to do? So we will use uh, experimental psychology as we usually do in order to get um, results and performance and EG results and, and as usual, what is different in the virtual reality environment is that we get this immersion component of re virtual reality. And this is really what it is about, right? The, the, the point that uh, we will try to reach a situation where the patients will really feel immersed. That would be the therapeutic aim. Uh, and uh, the idea is to manipulate the temporal parameters that will help patients to, be, to feel immersed in the virtual environment. That's really the, the long-term goal, let's say. But at first, we will uh, develop tools to um, help diagnosis. And this uh, will consist in, uh, again, manipulating temporal parameters, but see also which parameters you, uh, really um, um, make uh, patients actually uncomfortable. And, and then we get these uh, um, effects on performance and EG that we can measure and help us to um, diagnose this uh, difficulty to follow uh, events in time. So if I understood this correctly, you, you would use this as a form of like supplementary um material for diagnostics so you would have the classic let's say classic symptom checklist like in the dsm-5 sure and then sure. you would try to integrate also this temporal so the time perception component into that yeah. to even to, yeah. to have another kind of uh assurance Yes, yeah, the, the, the point is that timing disorders are not part of the diagnosis for the moment because this idea of time disorders comes from phenomenology and this has been more or less abandoned uh, some years ago. 
And it is also very difficult to explore these time disorders by asking patients. Um, some of them uh, report some impairments verbally, but I think it, it can be quite difficult also because, because it probably affects not only conscious mechanisms, but also automatic uh, non-conscious mechanisms. And this is really difficult to report. So that's why uh, we think we need experimental results. And uh, we, we use very simple tasks whereby subjects have to detect a target. And this target comes after various delays. And, and we know that healthy subjects benefit from the passage of time to improve their preparation and, and speed. And they become faster with time. And this is known to be impaired in patients with uh, self-disorders. And then we can use this virtual environment in addition to add um, parameters like distractors that can be asynchronous. And we have some results suggesting that this impairs especially the patients with schizophrenia. And we can add also star fields uh, that can be used as a tool to help patients to follow information over time because then time becomes visible and we can vary the speed of the star field. And this can all uh, happen within the virtual reality and, and where we can really measure how uh, patients feel immersed. And Is that clear? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, more or less, I'm, I'm still... Uh, I would still like to hear more about like the type of environment because in the um, in the previous interview I had a, quite a clear description of the virtual environment and what the tasks would look like. You said they're pretty rudimentary, so they're simple tasks. Um, yeah. And I'm just yeah I'm just thinking and, and have you seen also like uh, are there specific differences in terms of um, people, let's say schizophrenics who may have more of the positive symptoms or the negative symptoms? Yeah, we, we actually, we have to explore the, the sense of self, which is um, not really in the usual scales. So we use novel scales to explore these minimal self disorders um, inspired from phenomenology. And, and then the environment would be, actually we have indeed a scenario where the subjects are within a space shift, <laughs> shift ship, sorry, within a spaceship. And, and, and then there is stars outside the windows and these stars go by with different kind of speed. And then you, of course, you are, you are in a spaceship, so you have some um, things to press on and lights, and these can go synchronously or asynchronously. A new task is to react to a target in front of you, which becomes uh, red at some point, and you have to press on a button. And uh, yeah, is that clear? Yes, that uh, that sounds uh, like a pretty pretty fun task. Uh, I think a little bit more fun than the tasks we gave uh, people with ADHD to do with time estimation. Sounds pretty fun. 
And has <laughs> there uh, have there been uh, in terms of what you've seen so far? Uh, have you like what what is the best outcome or uh, was there a difference between let's say individuals who had like more of the positive symptoms of psychosis or the negative because I can imagine it would be uh, a factor uh, usually usually what we found until now with this timing disorders is that it's uh, patients with disorganization symptoms that are most impaired or those who have uh, self disorders, bodily self disorders. So those who might have difficulties to feel immersed in the environment might have more difficulties, I think, to benefit from the passage of time, for example. They won't become uh, faster with time. And also we have these electrophysiological um, correlates of this waiting period, which then becomes also altered. Okay, okay. So that's, yeah. And, yeah. and just to touch upon what you were saying before, in terms of the time component, that is indeed uh, not found in the diagnostic criteria. And again, it, it's yeah. seen as kind of this secondary or trivial issue but the more we study it the more we see how central it is and and it, it would yes. it makes perfect sense because if you think about it well part of uh focusing and uh part of uh experiencing the world is the time and and how we perceive time going by right so um absolutely and it's could, only no sorry it's go only ahead with Sorry, it's it's only I think it's normal that it's not part of the the diagnosis yet because uh, in fact we are speaking about implicit timing, right? So it's really the the time component of our cognitive mechanisms that we do not think about. Um, whenever we do a task, time is involved, but uh, we do not think about it. And probably that's why we forget about it. Well, yeah, and and I guess that depends on the task at hand, right? If we are uh, sitting mm. at the dentist sure. office, the time is quite noticeable. And um, the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the way Mark Whitman and Federico also mentioned was um, that the, the waiting more, room. Yeah, the, the and the more we pay attention to the idea that time is going by the more likely we are to notice it. So the opposite it would be like, uh, I see it, it's kind of the, the spectrum between dentist, waiting room or dentist uh, drilling um, <laughs> versus pure flow state where you're really so immersed in a task or something you love that you the time just flows by. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and mm -hmm. you, you get you totally lose. You know, three hours or four hours has just gone by. Maybe you're with someone you love, or I don't know. So they can be uh, a factor. So uh, you you mentioned the issues with self. So in, and this is mm -hmm. in terms of uh, psychosis and schizophrenia. This is often seen that we have um, issues about how we define ourselves, how we perceive ourselves. And so, and you, if I understood correctly, you also mentioned dysmorphia, like body dysmorphia, or, or did I misunderstand? 
I didn't mention it, but it's perfectly pertinent. <laughs> yeah, okay. they, they, they do display dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. And um, they, they also have, but the, the sense of self I am referring to is really the, the, the simplest form of it, not the one we have to think about, which would be reflective, but the one which allow us to look at our surroundings from a first person, from a first person perspective. I am seeing the, the world from, from myself and um, we, we do, again, we do not think about this kind of self, but uh, it defines how I see the world. It's exactly like when I say I see the world, uh, whoever will listen to me will hear, listen to the, uh, looking at the world, but not I am looking at the world. It's the I which is important there. Right, and it sounds a little bit like theory of mind there, somewhat. Oh, uh, yeah, except that you don't have to have any representation, mm, right? Mm -hmm. Just experience your perception. You right, perceive. Okay. You, you don't have to think about how you perceive. You just perceive. And it's this first person perspective that seems to be impaired in patience. Okay, yeah, in first person, but, but what I, why I mentioned theory of mind was like, what I was thinking was, well, the way the person thinks very often is projected into the world, into others, so. Oh yeah, in addition, sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, so that's, that's interesting. So in, in that terms, and how would you, so, so this would be, like the, the person would do this game or this task and then yes. the person would do a questionnaire or how would you assess this term, uh, this, this theme of the self? And I got it like more in the, in the just pure experiential self, not necessarily like reflective or. So, yeah, we will use questionnaires inspired by the phenomenology. Mm -hmm. So we have partners in, in the, this project who, who are trained to phenomenology and who uh, composed some questionnaires about uh, time and self. So we will use those. And phenomenology, you're referring to like the humanistic psychological uh, school of phenomenology or the purely philosophical phenomenology? How do you describe it? Yeah, it's the phenomenology applied to psychiatry, uh, which okay. is actually completely reviving now at wow. least in Europe okay. and uh, there is several questionnaires that uh, have been proposed to explore the sense of self also because those psychiatrists think that these impairments in the sense of self occur already before the onset of the pathology um, okay. and could be predictive of the onset of the pathology. Of course, the difficulty is then to ask the patients about their sense of self, which requires some, um, some reflection about oneself. It's, you, you can't address the first perspective directly uh, verbally. And that's uh, really why I think it has to be complemented by experimental 
approaches. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's and you know when it was the first time I the first thing I thought when I heard questionnaire and phenomenology, it, it kind of sounds like an oxymoron because usually I, I imagine questionnaires very quantitative, phenomenology being very qualitative. So. Oh, how yeah, would... that's true. But they, the some psychiatrists are still building questionnaires. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that, and that's so. I'm curious to hear more. How? What is exactly? Because this is the first time I've heard of phenomenological psychiatry, and I'm guessing. Oh yeah. For, oh yeah. And and well, I've heard of phenomenal phenomenology in terms of psychological schools, like the Rogerian school and the Dasein, mm -hmm. but. Uh, I think that for many listeners who are listening from the United States, I don't think they've ever heard of such a thing. So could you just briefly tell us what, what it is? Sure. So it's really inspired by uh, the, the phenomenology, uh, the, the, philosophy, the, the philosopher's phenomenology, Husserl and, and so on. Um, and... Um, when applied to psychiatry, the aim is really to try to capture the experience of the patient. So you, you really try to uh, ask him or her about uh, his or her experience of time and how it feels. And there is a lot of question, uh, questions you go through about uh, the sense of depersonalization, derealization, and all these things that do not belong to the uh, typical psychiatric scales anymore. I, I really think it, it has been revived. Actually, there are some phenomenologists in the USA too, right? Um, and uh, it, the reviving is probably explained by the fact that we needed to simplify our scales to, uh, to be sure that we are identifying the same symptoms across countries, which was right. a difficulty in the 50s. So the, the, the clinical approach was uh, simplified more and more and then become, became a little bit poor, in fact. And this is probably explaining why phenomen phenomenology is coming back again. Hmm. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I, I get the importance of it and especially the value of it in, in terms of dealing with people uh, who may have, um, you know, who may experience reality in such a particular way or such a unique way. It's very yeah. valuable for them uh, because yeah, it's not, a, exactly it's also a way to recognize that their experience is a true experience, even if they are, they have delusions, hallucinations. Okay, it's an hallucination, meaning they hear something that is not there, but still they hear something. Right. And uh, asking questions about this is recognizing the the fact that they really hear something. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's a true. Right? Yeah, it's a it's a true experience. You're validating the person and and the person's experiences. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I would say, uh, what I'm more I'm more interested in seeing like somebody who has this kind of uh, perception or consciousness to be able to also, uh, you know, 
place this type of uh, I don't want to say get well it can be a gift uh, to to then use it in in uh, creative endeavors for example or function somehow and accepting the fact that this is just their consciousness and very often it's the fear and anxiety that is actually the problem right sure but it this is really true for hallucinations right least. Mm-hmm. yeah and i guess that's where I, I keep thinking about more the positive symptoms that's that's true um but in terms of this so how uh, I will, i'll get back to the uh, to the details, the nitty gritty of your research. So, uh, how long has, uh, how long have you been uh, doing this research? And what are some, let's say, if you have some preliminary results or others? Because we talked a little bit, you mentioned something about diagnostics, but what about uh, treatment or better like treatments or management of symptoms? Okay, this this is a little bit um, um, premature, maybe. <laughs> we we still are in, with the pandemic anyway. The research has been slowed down, so we are not in the stage yet to really propose therapeutics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see how we could use it, but we first have to get more results with the virtual reality environment with patients. Uh, to make sure to assess, uh, to test our hypothesis that we are on the right track. Right. Uh, so um, on the therapeutic side, I, I would be a little bit cautious at this stage. Right. Okay. That's and that's perfectly fine. But and and would you uh, just mention some of the working hypothesis that you have that your team has regarding sure. diagnostics yeah. and treatment? Yeah, at least for schizophrenia, because this is really our expertise. Um, we have these results where uh, we think that, okay, patients do not benefit from the passage of time, but we try to explore why. And uh, we have these hypotheses about prediction mechanism at the millisecond level. Uh, meaning, you know, when we think that we can follow events uh, over time very accurately and we are immersed in the environment, etc. But when we look at the, the timing accuracy of, for example, our ability to detect that there is an asynchrony between two visual stimuli that are shown in two different locations, we are not that good actually. And there is such things as temporal windows where actually you integrate all information over time and you don't detect asynchronies at all. And then this is in contrast with our idea of being in um, immersed in the environment, able to flow information. So we looked at what happens uh, at the non-conscious level and whether we can have a better accuracy at a non-conscious level. And this is what happens actually. And our results point towards this prediction mechanism at the millisecond level. And these prediction mechanisms seem to be impaired in patients. And uh, actually the problem is that on, on, a conscious, on the conscious side, they don't detect asynchronies 
um, they they are they need larger asynchronies to detect them than than controls, but at the same time, at the non-conscious level, they actually uh, show um, automatic responses at the physiological level or motor responses that show that they actually process small asynchronies, even so they don't detect them consciously. And wow. also they don't, they don't uh, process these short asynchronies in the same way as controls. It's as if uh, somehow the short asynchronies are detected, but they, they didn't predict them as controls would. Uh, they, so they, it seems our hypothesis is that um, they process asynchronies, but they don't predict them. And mm. then it's as if it comes as a surprise. And we have some results that suggest that indeed uh, they react to small asynchronies as if they were surprising events. Mm. And they act so more than controls. As this is very paradoxical because usually uh, we, it's found that patients with schizophrenia react rather less than controls to anything actually. And in that case, they react more excessively to small asynchronies that were not predicted. And the idea, uh, what we have to look at is whether uh, this actually explains that they feel uh, time as being discontinuous. It's as if these small asynchronies would disrupt the flow of time, right? Aha, and okay. And, and this is what we, we look at now in, in this immersive environment. Okay, that's very interesting. And if I understood correctly, part of it is also like you, you mentioned, like physiologically, when there's a stimulus presented or some kind of irregularity uh, in terms of what is shown, they may, uh, they may uh, like they may uh, like uh, you see something in their physiology but they're not registering it as well like they're not acknowledging it so it's almost like exactly I, so it's almost like they're they're unconsciously taking it in but there's exactly. something there that's blocking it and you are uh, bringing forward this idea that it's possible that it's connected with the time perception or with the time flow and therefore it helps them like this unconscious intake and non-conscious recognition allows them to stay within their their type of time flow. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, to the navigate. Idea, yeah, mm -hmm. and, and we would have these asynchronous when we are outside in the street. There is all these asynchronous events. And we go on. I mean, it, it's okay, and we can uh, we can inhibit this information. I think, but it's as if patients wouldn't; they would not be able to inhibit this kind of information, and this would disrupt the time flow. That's the idea. But we really have it's it's an hypothesis. Still, we don't have uh, we have several results, but I, I think. We, we must go on with this hypothesis and, and check, in, check it again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, but that's, that's fascinating. I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's slightly paradoxical, but 
if we think yeah. about it, I mean, in, um, in patients with schizophrenia, very often they have a very hard time with uh, cognitive biases, uh, meaning yeah. with focusing, they, they have, they pick up on stimuli that, you know, we may uh, be ignoring, we may not look at. So I'm looking at the computer screen and there's, uh, I don't know, there's the wall behind it and there's some uh, holes, there's some things, some irregularities on the paint. Uh, Well, I'm I'm not focusing on them, but uh, if, you know, someone with psychosis might be very focused on them and may even find patterns in those uh, things. Yeah, absolutely. And I I should add that I am not the only one uh, interested in prediction in in patients with schizophrenia. There is a lot on predictive coding in in schizophrenia. And um, I would not uh, say that I want to explain everything with timing. Uh, it might be that there is also other impairments also in spatial uh, properties and and so on so yeah yeah definitely but i but as a scientist it is it is absolutely necessary to explore even these aspects and time time is uh time and time perception are of essence and i've uh i mean at least from what I see with ADHD. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I can only agree. (laughs) Yeah, and so, all right, and going forward, indeed, like what we've seen, like now with the, with this pandemic, uh, a lot of research has uh, come to a, to a halt. Uh, That's the case even here, unfortunately. Um, But what, so, so far, you've had how many how many years of exper- experiments or development? Uh, in general, you mean? No, no I mean with ta- this specific uh, specific with virtual reality and time perception. Oh, we 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 are really at the beginning. So okay. we spent more than two years, mm-hmm. and um, we hope to get more results in in patients very soon now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. And are you like, uh, in terms of your practice, are you somebody who focuses primarily on those with uh, schizo, uh, schizophrenia or psychosis, uh, schizotypal ty- types of patients? We, we, yeah, my, my main expertise, my main expertise is, is on schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, we explore also um, patients with bipolar disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, yeah, I, we did a, a little bit of studies until now. I have this impression that the the impairments are at a different level. But really, we have to check. There is much less research on on bipolar disorders than on schizophrenia. Mm. There is data. Well, but with bipolar, and you mean uh, in terms of bipolar disorder and brain research or time research on, on, on timing I mean oh mm-hmm. okay yeah because that makes sense because it seems I don't know it seems that schizophrenia has uh, has a little bit more uh, interesting but that's just maybe my bias uh, with bipolar we, we have like steady uh, like, like idea of how to treat it, right? In terms of mood stabilizer, uh, things of that sort. 
with schizophrenia, it, it is so varied and uh, it, it, it varies and it has so much more expressions of consciousness in my view. But of course, someone with bipolar disorder could be uh, hallucinating during the mania, right? So I'm, yeah, I'm, they, they, they have symptoms like racing thoughts too. Mm -hmm. um, well, the, they have this impression that their thoughts go faster than usual or mm. slowly, or that they have more than one thought in parallel in their mind. And, and so they have also uh, strange experiences that are not uninteresting. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, um, it's also useful, I think, to contrast these different experiences between patients with schizophrenia and patients with bipolar disorders. Uh, to, to try to pinpoint what the difference is really and to uh, verify this with experimental approaches too. Yeah, and in terms of experimental approaches, uh, on this show I've had you, Mark, and Federico uh, speaking about time perception and um, VR a little bit. And I also had a, another colleague, Malin, who was speaking about her research on psychedelic drugs. And I'm just oh, wondering yeah. if there's, yeah, if there's anything uh, that you've looked into or worked on in terms of experimental treatments uh, that are outside of the usual orthodoxy for a disorder like schizophrenia. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have the occasion to try psychedelics. I, I would like to because there is a, an impact on time experience, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, we only tried uh, an experiment with um, a colleague of mine whose name is Jenny Cool, who is a specialist of timing too. Mm -hmm. And um, we tried this um, uh, regime Regimen, you, you, regime. you, yeah, a regime with the participants where they have to eat only vegetables for 24 hours and then uh, you give them amino acids, uh, a mixture of amino acids, and uh, within this mixture, you have all amino acids or you deplete. Uh, tyrosine and feline aniline. So these amino acids are the precursors of dopamine. And actually this is um, enough to um, decrease the level of uh, dopamine in, in blood and dust in brain. And it, it is known to affect uh, the perception of duration, you know? Okay, that's fascinating. So if I understood correctly, you're saying you, get, you did this experiment where you gave people in the experiment, they could only eat vegetables for 24 hours. Then mm -hmm. they came to the lab, you gave them amino mm -hmm. acids and mm -hmm. those amino acids were, uh, which one were they? Uh, well, you, you give them all and uh, in half sessions, uh, you give them all minus phenylalanine and tyrosine. So uh -huh. you mean precursors of dopamine. Okay. So th those and are the main precursors to dopamine and you don't give them and what you gave, you give them everything else, all the other yeah. amino acids. And what's yeah. the result? What, what happens to them? Then the level of dopamine decreases. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. And, and then, 
then you can test them. It's it's uh, like uh, giving them neuroleptics, actually, psychotropic drugs, but okay. it's less aggressive and it's uh, it's enough actually to to decrease the level of dopamine and it's cleaner also because it's it's really targeting dopamine because you know that psychotropic drugs will have other effects than only on dopamine. Right. But so just so just to give a context to the listeners, because I'm I also don't fully have it. Now you're talking about uh, dopamine and relations to time perception or in relation to hallucinations, because dopamine is associated. If you have too much dopamine, you can hallucinate. Um, Sure, but here you are depleting dopamine. So you don't induce um, hallucinations but you are affecting a system that is known to be involved in schizophrenia. Okay. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I was trying to get to. So you're, you're using this primarily for people with schizophrenia in order. No, no, without, without. Uh You you can do that in healthy and in healthy participants. Okay. But you're showing that you're able to decrease the dopamine and thus hypothetically also decrease the hallucinations in somebody who may be prone to it, right? It might, yeah. Okay. Uh, but in that case, you, you can just use this procedure to, to verify the impact of dopamine on the mechanism that you believe are involved in schizophrenia. Mm. This is a way to verify whether... Um, what we observe in schizophrenia is mediated by dopamine or not. Actually, it's not. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, because because I mean, with the dopamine, this is is it's this is something that I remember studying in college. Is if you give uh, people L-dopa, it should be the precursor, pre- pure precursor of dopamine. Uh, yeah. You should be able to help with things like Parkinson's, but if you give too much, then they will probably start hallucinating. So that's where I came to this association. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, but, and, and so you're saying that in these amino acids, like, cause you gave them, you told them only to eat vegetables. So there's no uh, dopamine precursor in vegetables. There is a little bit less. I mean, it's a way to just uh, make sure that uh, the participants are not uh, eating a lot of things that would increase the levels of dopamine. Okay. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is um, very interesting. And in terms, do you know any other research regarding that that may help increase or boost uh, dopamine and let's say serotonin or other pleasurable um, neurotransmitters. And I know this is kind of a simplification, but I would, I would seek out what is, uh, you know, releasing more than uh, inhibiting, but that's just me. Um, well, I worked a lot on benzodiazepines, but uh, this was long ago. So um, I, yeah, I, I didn't do anything on timing. So sorry. Well, but um, psychedelic would be a good idea, but um, yeah. <laughs> well, but I was referring to food specifically, but yeah, 
in terms of talking about serotonin so yeah 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 and foods i was thinking of things like uh chocolate uh things like um uh, saffron the spice saffron ah, yeah. yeah like chocolate uh, with saffron <laughs> yes good saffron um i don't know there's yeah because this is this is definitely a fascinating topic um mm. but okay and in terms of uh in terms of this like uh and and we can we will uh, we have about 10 minutes left like what do you see as let's say what is your hope for the future, what do you plan on bringing to the table? And do you see other new trends, new, uh, like exciting trends from the field of psychiatry that maybe people uh, don't know about? Um, I, I think generally that uh, we need to integrate um, the research on schizophrenia more, at least in, in cognition. Uh, because uh, I think it's mainly driven by clinical questions. At some point, uh, we have really to try to explain to which extent we can explain the cognitive impairments and relate them to symptoms. So I, I really think that the phenomenological approach should help us at least to define these symptoms a little bit better, and then to try to explore these, um, these fundamental questions like what I said before, for example, very simple example of how we, our research is too delimited in two restricted domains. Uh, when I spoke about the prediction uh, on the millisecond level, and then I said it could impair the passage of time, actually, we lack a model where we can integrate what happens at the milliseconds level and, and at the seconds level, at the level of seconds. Uh, and, and this is a very simple example. And, and we really need to integrate more um, all these aspects to try to understand what happens in, in patients with schizophrenia. It's a pathology where many, many cognitive functions are impaired and we each look at one function generally, but it's very difficult to cross the border and, and go to the other expert looking at another function and, and ask uh, how these impairments might relate to each other. For example, on timing, patients will say that they are distracted and uh, they can't follow information over time. But this you can interpret at the light of uh, timing, but you can also interpret it at the light of um, um, sustained attention. And these are very different domains with uh, different models, cognitive models. And maybe, maybe researchers in schizophrenia um, need more than anyone else to uh, cross these borders because uh, everything is impaired in patients. And, and we have to understand how these impairments um, uh, go with each other, integrate 
and, 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 and results in the known symptoms of schizophrenia. So I, I think that maybe um, as researchers in schizophrenia, we should, we should go and say, okay, I want to understand what happens in my patients, but then I need to uh, ask this and this fundamental questions. And for this, I need to, that the experts in, for example, uh, sustained attention and timing uh, speak to each other and build new models. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so I, I don't know what you think about this. Well, yeah, I, I think this is this is very this is very on point and, and, and interesting in terms of uh, creating cognitive models uh, that fit uh, that fit into something like schizophrenia. Uh, I think that that is very useful and that it can not only help us like uh, researchers, clinicians, whatever to, uh, to understand what the other person is going through, but it may, yeah, it may help also uh, the people in terms of understanding themselves and working on um, things that uh, things about their cognitive processes with a therapist. Uh, so yes, I, I think that's very good. And the phenomenology aspect as well, it's not, uh, you know, it's something necessary in my view in almost all therapeutic contexts. Um, and just just for you, um, if there's people who, who may suffer from psychosis or psychotic-like symptoms, do you have some recommendation for them or um, things they can do? Yeah, I, I think in general, uh, in the society, that there is a message to diffuse, I think, that um, anybody can suffer from hallucinations. First, hallucination doesn't mean uh, that um, we have psychosis. Hallucinations right. happen for multiple reasons. So there is no, no way one should be ashamed about any symptoms first. There is no shame there. Um, it's just an experience that anyone could have in special conditions. So I think beyond uh, the patients, uh, we should be probably more tolerant with uh, these experiences because in fact, uh, we probably all have different experiences. I mean, uh, our first uh, person perspective uh, is probably different. We can't know whether we all see red in the same way, for example. So right. there is probably more inter-individual differences than we think of. We always um, have this assumption that uh, the people in front of us see the world exactly in the same way as we do. And probably there is uh, some agreement, general agreement, uh, because else we couldn't speak with each other. So there is probably something true there, but probably it's also a little bit untrue because there is a lot of inter-individual differences. And, and what happens in psychosis is, is only another difference. 
So the first thing is not to be ashamed about that. Um, and, and then, and not to be ashamed to ask help when this is associated with suffering, anxiety, panic, or whatever makes you suffer. So, so yeah, the, the general idea is that uh, we should have less stigma. Uh, we should stigmatize mental health less than we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a great message. And it's one of uh, the core messages also of this show in general. And you, you really touched upon um, a lot of things there uh, in terms of, and that's also reinforces the, the importance of phenomenology and understanding that, yes, we have some kind of convergence in terms of experience, but uh, I, it's never good to assume and to think that people have the same point of view or, you know, the same uh, kind of experiences, etc. So yes, that's very important. Um, and yes, and that's, that was uh, very good. So Anne, thank you very much for being on the show today with me. I think it was a very good way of uh, touching upon the previous two episodes with Mark and Federico. And um, I, I just wanted to give you the chance, like, where can people find you? Or do you, do you have some um, web page or uh, other places where they can find your you and your work? So I am working at INSERM, which is the National Institute for Health in France. And I am working in Strasbourg, um, in France, on the border of Germany. (laughs) I'm not moving just now because of uh, lockdown. (laughs) And I can be reached. Our uh, lab is uh, uh, the Cognitive Neuropsychology and Pathophysiology of Schizophrenia. That's the title. And we have a number, uh, INSERM U1114. And there is a website for this. And you will find my email address there. It's my name, Girsch, at (laughs) unistra.fr. Okay, well, thank, I hope they uh, people can pronounce that French, but in any ways, I can put this all <laughs> in, the, in the show notes. Uh, thank you very much, thank Anne. You. And I would like thank to, you. yes, and I would like to thank the listeners and uh, thank you for uh, those of you who have been supporting the show. I greatly appreciate it. I couldn't do this without you. And if you can, please uh, send a donation to support the show and all will be in the uh, show notes below. Have a great one.